0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the InDefense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because I have Clay Bolt, who is the Senior Program Officer and Communications Lead for the World Wildlife Fund Northern Great Plains Program on the show today to talk about bumblebees, insects in general, and the need for habitat, big and small, and what really all of us can do personally to help insects like bumblebees out. Clay is deeply passionate about insects, conservation, and photography. And if you have not explored his photography, stay tuned in the end or check the show notes for his Instagram. It'll be a great jumping off point. He's got photographs in places like Nat Geo, for instance. But I don't want to steal any of his thunder. This is really important work and a really great conversation. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado... Here's my conversation with Clay Bolt. I hope you enjoy. All right, Clay Bolt, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you today, but first, how about we start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Sure, Matt, and thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. I am the conservation lead for WWF's Northern Great Plains program, and I'm also the unofficial insect expert for the organization (laughs) and super passionate about pollinators, in particular our native bees that we have here in North America. And for the past 20 years, I've also worked as a natural history and conservation photographer with many of the world's leading conservation organizations and my focus has always been on trying to help people connect with the the charismatic microphone, if you <laughs> will, the smaller things that live in our world that need a lot more publicity.
0: That's awesome. And you're in the right form right now for it. So welcome aboard. <laughs> but Thank you. Where did this journey start for you? I mean, you're in an interesting position. You've done a lot of really interesting stuff. I mean, were you a nature kid growing up or is this something you just kind of stumbled into sort of later on in life?
1: You know... I always tell people this. I don't exactly know where my love of insects came from. I just know it was always there, and um, I was always the kid who could, you know, draw. And so I was always interested in science and art. But I remember in the first grade, the teacher asked us, you know, "What do you guys want to do when you grow up?" And I was the little nerd that was like, "I want to be an entomologist." <laughs> you know, I had read that word recently. I'm nice. sure I was happy to show it <laughs> off. But I've just always been super passionate about insects. I've <laughs> always found them to be so fascinating. And, um, you know, really, I, as I get older, I do wonder why that love is within me, you know, like, I've even thought about, like, were there ancestors that paid more closer attention to things? Or like, what is it? Or did I identify with them because I was a shy kid? And it was Hmm. something I could focus on closely? I don't know. It's Hmm. just always, always been there for me.
0: That's cool. And I I kind of, Think about that a little bit more these days, just because you learn a little bit more about your family history. And I found out that it almost like skips a generation of plant lovers. And it I, was I doomed to just be in this position. And yeah, <laughs> what what draws us to certain walks of life? I mean, it's one thing to be like, I like being outside and and in nature. That I think is inherent in most people, whether they realize it or not. But yeah, what makes us choose the paths we're on?
1: You know, it's really interesting that you say that because as I've learned about my own family history, on my mother's father's side my grandfather's side a couple of generations back there was one person who was a an herbalist you know he was a country doctor who used a lot of you know native plants in his healing and and there were some other people on that particular lineage of the family who did similar things and so you know i love plants i love pretty much anything (laughs) that i can find in the forest or field and i and i'm just obsessed with learning more about nature and so part of me has always wondered if there is some sort of predisposition to to yeah. look at those things and love those things.
0: Nice. So any developmental biologists, human behaviorists, reach out, let us know what you find. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've know, found two worlds that I, I think more than others, uh, ecology is the study of interactions, but insects and plants, boy, do they find each other in the same conversation quite a bit. And uh, what better way to kind of sort of scratch those curiosities than to just go full bore professionally with it and so you know obviously the insect world is vast uh, but bees seem to have kind of captured your attention at least in recent years
1: yeah that's absolutely true and you know it's funny growing up I remember I I'm working on a a book right now and I've sort of been going through like thinking about various memories and I remember being a kid and and collecting bumblebees, and then sadly watching them die because I didn't know how to take care of them yeah. and didn't realize they had to eat constantly and those kinds of things. But I didn't really know much about them. I, when I was twelve, I bought uh, Simon and Schuster's Field Guide to the Insects, and I still own it. And I was looking through it, <laughs> nice. and there, there are maybe like eight bees in there, or maybe ten bees or something. And most of them have a half page, um, except for honeybees, you know, which are <laughs> interesting they had like four full pages Oh yeah and bumblebees just said bumblebee with no description of the species and it was a half page and it was the Western bumblebee bombus occidentalis, huh. which we have here. So I didn't really know much at all about bees um, in general but around 2013, like everyone else, I read what was happening with honeybees there was this time famous Time magazine cover now mm. what will happen to us if we don't figure out what's killing the honeybee. And at that time, I have to admit, I didn't realize that honeybees were not native to North America. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to do something. I thought, here is a story that that needs to be told. And I feel like as as an insect photographer, that I'm somebody who can add to that conversation. And so I I remember it so distinctly. I went out into my backyard. I was living in South Carolina at the time, set up my camera near a patch of asters that were blooming. It was uh, like around July. And I photographed. These two small bees going to this small aster flower. The flower is about the size of a nickel. And these (laughs) were teeny tiny bees, you know, smaller than a grain of rice. One was a bright metallic green and the other was black and sort of a cream color with stripes. And I went online to try to figure out what I had photographed. And I shared these images with some of my entomologist friends. And back then, you know, it seems recent, but back then there was just less resources available to figure out what bees we had. And It was people had a hard time identifying it. One entomologist whom I won't name, a brilliant guy, said, oh, that's a leafcutter bee. Mm -hmm. Well, he was absolutely wrong. And I thought, okay, once I figured out what it was, I thought if this person doesn't know what this is, maybe there's a story to be told here. Hmm. Um, And I soon learned that we have approximately 4,000 species of native bee in the U.S. and Canada, over 6,000 if we include Mexico. 20,000 in the world and most of those species, the life story has not really been told. They have not really been documented. And at that point I was like, okay, I figured out by that time that honeybees weren't native. And I was looking at all of these other bees and thinking, wow, I could spend the rest of my life. I could spend several (laughs) lifetimes trying to tell these stories. And so that sent me on this great adventure.
0: Wow. I love that. And yeah, there was a time period (laughs) Back before iNaturalist, I I mean, I remember just trying to use simple search terms and there were like five websites for some of the plant stuff, let alone some of the more esoteric organisms whose stories even scientifically had never been told, let alone communicated in any major meaningful way. And uh, I remember specifically with bumblebees, my jaw hitting the floor, my partner went to a bumblebee ID workshop and I was like, there's like three of them, right? And she's like, no, and brought home this amazing diagram of just color patterns of fur and abdomen and and spotting. And it would just, it opened this whole new world. And now everyone I see, I'm like, okay, what are you? And I still have no hope of identifying it personally, but it, it's at least being aware that there's more than just bumblebee.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's funny that you say that because I have always been interested in sort of the oddball species, like <laughs> you know, I love carnivorous plants. I like the things that that do really interesting behaviors and things that sometimes people might think, oh, I don't know if I like that or not. And so I was really getting interested off the bat with these sweat bees, you know, which have a bad rap, and, but they're also incredibly beautiful. But because there were very few resources to determine what I'd been photographing to, to, and to know what I wanted to photograph and learn more about the species in my area, I went up to the Great Smoky Mountains National Parks, mm. uh, Twin Creek Science Center, nice. uh, which has a really nice insight collection. And I was talking with the park entomologist Becky Nichols um, about species in the park. And I asked her right before I left, I said, you know, Becky, is there anything here in the park that is is rare or hasn't been seen in a while? And she said, well, yes, there is one. It's called a rusty patch bumblebee. Oh and uh it's a species that we don't exactly know why it's declining uh, the xerces society for invertebrate conservation and others have tried to press the fish and wildlife service to at least give a 90-day finding whether or not the species should be listed or not and there's you know it's been by that time it had been over 800 days since they had filed that petition oh, wow. and i photographed a specimen of the rusty patch and it just kind of it was like this moment I've talked about this in other places, but there was a passenger pigeon sort of in the same room. (laughs) And, you know, if you know the story about the passenger pigeon, it was a species that was, you know, there were millions of passenger pigeons, almost like a social organism. And and they disappeared before we even really knew what was happening because we took them for granted. And I looked at this little bumblebee and I thought, this is another uh, Ghost in the Making, which is the name of a film I made about that. I I, I thought... If I don't, if I don't do something, if I don't try to help this cause, the species is going to go extinct um, before we even know know what to do. And so, at that point, I became obsessed with bumblebees. Essentially, hmm. I started trying to learn everything that I could about them. And I found out in my research that, sadly, you know, we have the number the number keeps changing changing as we, as we do more DNA analysis of bumblebees, <laughs> right, right. but we have around 45 species oh, wow. of bumblebee in the U S wow. there's around 250, I think, in the world. Um, and one out of four, at least here in North America is at risk, is at risk of extinction. Whoa. That's yeah. alarming. Wow.
0: Yeah. Oof. And it's, it's fitting. I mean, the rusty patch has gotten more attention in recent years, even in sort of more common circles, I guess, is one way of saying it. But when you say it in that context of, A, just the the number of species we have, but then the plight of those species, I think you get that situation. The passenger pigeon's the perfect example where it can be this thing that everyone takes for granted. And then before that story gets fully told, because I hear plenty of people speculating on passenger pigeon ecology, but now that it's gone, it's all it's all we have, right? And, and think about the intimate relationships an organism like a bumblebee has with plants, with other organisms. And you start to realize how quickly the foundation that these organisms set can unravel if we're not careful.
1: Yeah, that is so true. And and <clears throat> one of the things that, that I found as I worked on this film, I go to the making with my friends from Day's Edge Productions, is after having spent quite a lot of time in the field with rusty patch bumblebees is that they do behave differently when they're visiting flowers. So for hmm. example, the common eastern bumblebee, Bombus impatiens, the name kind of gives away that it's a fast forager, it nervously <laughs> lands, it's very impatient and it moves on to something else. Whereas with the resty patch bumblebees that I've seen, they're very slow and methodical. They walk around and around the flower and, you know, maybe they go somewhere else and do something else. But so so I could tell that they were acting differently when they visited those flowers and you know, the more we learn about bumblebee behavior, for example, we know that like, for example, certain individual bees may prefer a certain kind of flower, Hmm. certain kinds of bumblebees, even though they're generalists, which is one of the things that makes them such good pollinators, they'll visit lots of kinds of flowers. The more we learn about them, the more we realize that they have these really interesting interactions with plants and plants with pollinators, for example, um, research came out um, uh, maybe uh, two years ago that said that that plants, when plants sense the vibrations of an approaching bee, they release more nectar. Like Hmm. there are these weird things that are happening with pollinators. Um, So you're absolutely right. Um, What was interesting to me as well is, so we were really fortunate. We used the film as a lobbying piece. I spoke in front of a. a congressional briefing on Capitol Hill. Wow. On behalf of the bee, which is something I never thought I'd do. <laughs> right,
0: kudos. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I even
1: wore a suit. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now I'm uncomfortable. <laughs>
1: yeah. So was I. Yeah. Uh, it was very hot that day. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, we were able to put it, to help it push it over the, the finish line to get it placed on the endangered species That's list. That's awesome. Um, but one of the things it would be great to talk about at some point during this conversation is the idea of like policy. Can only do so much, you know. In the face of in in the face of so many species needing our help and needing us to pay attention to them, um, it really comes down to what we do as individuals, I think, and in, a, in a, um, a big way in terms of what we do in our own communities and our backyards and those things to help these species. So, um, it's a I would say that it is a um, a great time of awareness or an increase a time of increasing awareness about the value of pollinators and, and species like bumblebees to our world
0: oh for sure for sure and yeah before we get into that aspect of it particularly i do want to just take a minute to talk about some of the threats i mean when you think about the attention that's being paid to bees i mean the obviously the honeybee still getting it's got good pr <laughs> i guess but you know, you hear about colony collapse and it's not the same across the board. There's a lot of common threats to all insects, but the threats to these bees are probably as varied as sort of the nuances to, like you were saying, the ecology of how they handle flowers, what they interact with, what are they going for a majority of the time. And something that affects a species that forages in forests is going to be slightly different than something that affects a species that's foraging out in the open, say in the Great Plains. And so When we think of the the ratio of threatened to non-threatened bumblebees, I mean, what are some of those things that are landing those species
1: on the threatened trajectory? It's a very good question with a complicated answer, but (laughs) (laughs) as most things are in ecology. Um, But, you know, it really comes down to a few factors. So the bees that are actually in the highest degree of decline, more more or less, are the species that are closely related to the rusty patch bumblebee. Hmm. And so... Dr. Robin Thorpe, um, who's since passed on, was an amazing advocate for for, um, bumblebees. And he began to wonder, is there some sort of disease that's impacting these bumblebees? Because it seemed to be all species that were closely related. For example, Bombus franklinii, Franklin's bumblebee, which was recently added to the endangered species Hmm. list, is a very close relative of the rusty patch bumblebee. Um, And so Dr. Thorpe was uh, an expert on Franklin franklin's bumblebee and he was just trying to figure out okay what's happening and so as scientists began to like think about this one of the things they realized is that bumblebees began to decline um rusty patch bumblebees began to decline really in the early 90s Hmm. and that coincided with a couple of important events the first of those being is that was the beginning of the rise of the commercial bumblebee industry
0: Uh.
1: um So a lot of people may not realize that that like honeybees, certain species of bumblebee are commercially weird um, for pollination of things such as cherry tomatoes in greenhouses Um, because they use a technique. These bumblebees utilize a technique called sonication or buzz pollination Hmm. where they can unhinge their wings from their flight muscles, vibrate those flight muscles at a middle C, and it causes pollen to fall from the anthers of things like blueberries, and tomatoes, and some of these important crops. Hmm. Uh, so so how this whole process began is that maybe like late 80s, early 90s, uh, at that time, bees were already being commercially reared in Europe, but we had no facilities here in the U.S., and so some North American bees were sent to Europe uh, for breeding, and they were bred right alongside several European species, including Bombus terrestris, hmm. um, the buff bumblebee, which is a species that's a European cousin of the rusty patch bumblebee, wow. And so once those bees reached the the capacity that they needed to be at, so that we could start this industry here in the U.S., those queens that had been shipped up there, along with the workers, were shipped back to the U.S. And when they came back, it appears that they had a higher prevalence of a pathogen, a microsporidian gut pathogen called Nosema bombi which impacts bees in lots of ways. It causes less fitness in terms of like, they may maybe be more lethargic. Um, It's harder for the male bees to mate because they're so full of spores that they can't move their abdomens, you know, just a lot of really, really bad things that impacted the fitness of these bees. And so scientists such as Dr. Sydney Cameron began to do research to try to figure out, you know, is there a a boundary line. If could they find a place where this rise in nocema began after um, these uh, commercially reared bees returned to the U.S. And what she discovered, she and her team, by looking at museum specimens, and that's sort of how they went about it. They carefully learned how to carefully take out a bit of the 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 gut of of a bumblebee without destroying the without destroying the specimen.
0: Okay. Um,
1: yeah. It's, it's delicate work. Yeah. Um, they did determine that after these species returned back to the U S there was this rise, but what they couldn't determine was whether or not it was a European strain or a U.S. strain or mm. North American strain, because Nosema Bombay is here in the U S as well. Hmm. Um, so it, it turns out at least the latest research seems to, seems to suggest that when bees are reared in close proximity to one another, as you might imagine, more diseases are spread amongst one another, which causes this rise in populations. For example, there was a, um, another species that's in severe decline the Western bumblebee, Bombus occidentalis, which was super common at one point, is also being impacted by this disease. And there was an instance where it was being reared in a lab, and they had to shut down the lab because there were, bees were just all dying oh, of wow. in the same bomb. Bombay. So we clearly knew that there was something happening when they were trying to raise these bees. Um, but so, so, so like, for example, the rusty patch, they stopped trying to rear that in captivity and they focused on species like the common Eastern bumblebee, hmm. which is, you know, very easy to rear it. You know, they grow really quickly. You can ship them around in boxes. And then currently there's no regulation from USDA APHIS, USDA APHIS for where those bees can be shipped. At some point they were even being shipped up into Canada where oh the boy. bees grew. Escape, escaping into non-native habitat in the western Western Canada and coming mm. down into Washington, yeah, and spreading disease. They were sent to greenhouses and then they would escape to the air vents. I've witnessed this happening myself. <laughs> yeah. They just fly right out wow. and come in contact with the wild bees, and you can see how they could spread disease. So that's one of the factors: is Dang. this unregulated commercial <laughs> bumblebee industry. Yeah. Um, the second factor. Is uh, I think you can look at neonicotinoid pesticides, yeah. which most people have heard about. Right. And neonicotinoids are it's, it, it's bad stuff. They're bad. They're so bad for so many parts of the environment because they are what's called a systemic pesticide, which means that unlike you know something that you might spray on a plant to say kill aphids, systemic pesticides primarily are applied to plants through the seed process. So. Mm. of the world's top seed producing companies are owned by the world's leading pesticide corporations, chemical companies, Syngenta and others like that. They bought these seed companies and use the seed as a vehicle to sell their product. Hmm. And right now, 100% of uh, non-organic corn or soy are coated. The seeds are coated with these neonicotinoid pesticides. What that means for wildlife and for us as we consume those products is that 100% of that plant eventually becomes in, ingests that, that chemical and every part of the plant becomes toxic. So if a flower is blooming that has been coated with neonicotinoids, the pollen and the nectar are toxic to these. Mm. You can't wash it off. It's right. in the tissues of the plant. And as that plant drops leaves or you know, decomposes into the soil, those neonicotinoids go right into the soil it's highly water soluble and those were released in you might guess the early 90s at the same time bang when these commercial bumblebees were going into the to the environment and although there are no studies well the issue is that that neonicotinoids are so prevalent in the environment that it's probably impossible to find a bee that doesn't have some trace Mm. of neonicotinoids in their bodies but there are studies that have been done that show that honeybees that have been been impacted by nosema um are are, sorry being uh, subjected to uh, neonicotinoids are more susceptible to parasites like nosema wow so you've got that (laughs) oh man (laughs) it's a big mess yeah and then and then and it's super depressing but i'm I'm trying to sound cheerful for your viewers <laughs> listeners uh and then the third part of it is is of course habitat loss right uh, because because not only do these bees have less food and less places to live but as they're isolated into pockets maybe there's a pocket of natural space amongst you know hundreds of acres of corn crops well they are not able to share genetic mm. materials with other other bees maybe on the other side of that field and so they become less and less able to fend off disease same deal with honeybees and varroa mites even though the pesticide companies don't want you to know about that so much of the money that's put into getting people to look at the um look at the varroa mite a lot of that work is funded by the pesticide companies because they oh. don't want you to realize. yeah there's a lot of research on that mm. um They do a lot of stuff for beekeeping organizations. There's this huge lobbying organization called Crop Life USA that takes up a city block in D.C. Heard of them. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a complicated mess. And I would bring it back to the positive by saying that this is why I really believe that homeowners and people who can make a difference in their own communities can really provide a valuable contribution for for helping, helping pollinators.
0: Big time, big time. And yeah, it's, it's tough to talk about this stuff in any sort of positive light because it just compounds and compounds. And the more you learn, you're like, oh man, but it's the complicated nature of it. That means we have to look, you know, just as there's no one smoking gun, so to speak, there's a lot of them pointing at these poor insects. You know, we have to be multifaceted. It's not just waiting for the world's governments to pull their heads out and suddenly go, oh, we're going to do good things now. Just kidding. Sorry about all that. You know, but that's the, the the power then comes to the individual, and that's what I really like about sort of these flip side arguments is that, hey, we actually can do something in our own world, and I, I'm happy you brought up sort of the habitat loss and isolation aspect of this because you have all of these other issues kind of hitting them, and then nowhere to live or stagnation, and and just as gene pools can get shallow, and say like you don't, well, there's a lot of examples how gene pools can get shallow. It's not good, and and stretches of habitat that look, you know, we can cross the street, no problem. I can walk down the block and go to the next forest patch. When you're a tiny insect, that's not always an option. And that's why this private land, what we're doing in and around our homes or apartments, wherever you're at, can have a big impact because that's that stepping stone sort of thing. We're we're recreating what's been lost to an extent. So let's talk about that because, yeah, let's get people fired up and want to do something that they can do.
1: Yeah, well, you know what? The thing I love so much about this concept of backyard or community conservation is it often doesn't take a lot of money. Um, It often requires each person who participates to only do a small thing. So, for example, (laughs) one of my favorite examples is there's a species of butterfly. I hope I get this right. um, A mission blue butterfly that is found around San Francisco. And the species for the very things we're talking about was going extinct because there was two populations. One was like up in the Marin headlands and another was like, maybe say on the other side of town Mm. and the gene pool was getting very shallow and the city recognized that. And rather than trying to, you know, just focus on this one population and whatever they decided, they were going to figure out how to connect the two populations and let the butterflies do it naturally. Hmm. So the city began this program to plant buckwheat, which was a food plant for the butterfly or the caterpillar throughout the city, like a stepping stone. <laughs> and the butterfly, it worked like a charm, and the butterfly <laughs> connected. And now there's this thoroughfare, this um, corridor, this pollinator corridor that the species can live in. And I was actually just speaking with somebody a few days ago and she said, I had one in my backyard ah, for the first time. Nice. You know? And so I would say, you know, like here at WWF, we had this new project called one square foot that we've done in partnership with Airwick uh, scented oils. And there's two components to that. One component is that we're working to reseed a large portion of the Northern Great Plains, nice. 20, around 23,000 acres for this project, yeah. or a billion square feet. We're sort of thinking about <laughs> it in units of square feet, which Sweet. sounds a bit
0: weird. Yeah, I like it, though. It's tangible. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's tangible. But the idea stemmed from the fact I was I was speaking with our partners, and I said, you know, even, even a square foot on someone's patio can make a difference for mm, pollinators. Yeah. Um, and so we want to encourage people to do that, just to, to do what you can, even if you don't have a big backyard, a potted, you know, a pot full of some plants is, is really helpful. I had this epiphany once. This was back in South Carolina. I had, you know, I had a, a couple acres, but um, the, when I first moved in, it, the place had been uh, managed to death, you could say. Like there wasn't <laughs> a leaf on the ground. Everything right. had been scalped. The grass was cut down to the dirt. and this was maybe a two, two or three years after I'd moved in, and did a very used a much different management plan where I let leaves fall and decompose, mm. and I cut the grass with a, you know, a slide kind of thing. You know, oh, nice. I was just trying, I was trying to do <laughs> have as little, a few impacts as possible on the land. And I remember it so well. It was just early spring, and I could hear the spring peepers peeping in the pond, and you know, I could hear like a um, a screech owl and I listened and I, I noticed there was this weird sound that it was like the leaves were shuffling. And I realized that within those leaves that I'd let fall, there were salamanders, there were nice. firefly larvae, there were worms, there were beetles, all of these things. And it occurred to me in that moment that like while I couldn't save the world on my own as much as I'd love to <laughs> try to help nature. Or, right. I on a a global scale, what I could do is have control over that backyard um, that, that, you know, I chose. I could choose whether or not to mow or not. I could choose whether or not to rake leaves. And those actions that I chose impacted the lives of millions, literally millions of organisms. It was like my own little nature reserve, you know, writ small, (laughs) if you will. And I want everyone to realize that no matter where you live, even if you don't have your own backyard, there's surely a community park where your voice can be heard yeah. to help. Um, it's really just speaking up for these things and being a champion and an advocate for these species. That's really, really what they need. Right. So I say, if you love these things, join a local parks and trails committee. Um, I've done the same thing here in my town in Livingston, Montana, and we now have a NOMO May program to nice. help early spring bees. You know, the city loves it because they don't have to pay people to mow the grass.
0: Cost savings.
1: You know? <laughs> Cost savings. That's right. right. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's so many things we can do.
0: I love that. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you do with photography adds another layer to that enjoyment and appreciation because you're giving voices, but you're giving a visual impact to these things that are tiny so small. I mean, a bumblebee is a good size insect, but to see it in macro really puts into perspective just how incredible these organisms are. And yeah, just the littlest bit of unmaintenance, I guess, would be a way to put it, makes such a difference. And one thing that hit me really hard and something I don't, you know, I'm a plant person, so I'm not thinking about insect ecology as much, but Doug Tallamy was on here and he said, you know, one of the benefits to kind of making insects the poster children for this is just how quickly their generations can rebound if given a chance, which really puts this insect decline issue into context of just how hard we're hitting these poor organisms. But the littlest bit goes so far. And, and you know, here, central Illinois is the perfect example. There is nothing but industrial corn and soy for miles upon miles. But if you plant a tiny, you know, like you said, a little square foot of, of habitat, how quickly that gets the attention of every insect within a wings beat away.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really true. And I, and that is one of the things, you know, at least at this point in time, I feel like nature can bounce back. And I think if we do, just give it a little room to live and grow and thrive. It will do that. That's the very nature of nature. It wants to grow and thrive and reproduce. <laughs> um, I recall one time I planted a, a plant called a mock orange in my in my garden. Nice. And there wasn't uh, a mock orange as far as I knew for a couple of miles around. And a couple of years after that, I noticed these little tiny black bees on the plant, bees I'd never seen before. Well, it turns out that those are specialist bees of Mark Orange. Wow. And how on earth (laughs) they found their way to my garden, I don't know. But there they were, you know. And I've had that happen multiple times. It's no different than putting out a bird feeder and suddenly you have cool birds in your backyard, you know. Like, they, they find these things. And so, you know, I think in this world that where we're dealing with these huge issues like climate change and... You know um, all of these various things that i think seem um out of reach for us the idea of working locally is a big thing you know i like to tell people that you know i don't de- demon <clears throat> demonize people for 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 wanting to have a better life i mean i feel like yeah. a lot of the problems we've gotten ourselves into is because like electricity is nice like i like to have right. a light at night <laughs> i like to have heat i like to you know, whether I need to burn wood or whether I need to, you know, have a, a furnace, like, these are things that that people want, because it makes their lives better, it helps their children to grow healthier, those kinds of things. And that's kind of, I think, in some ways, how we got where we're at, we mm-hmm. just took a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And I think before we realized it, speaking generally, of course, before we realized it, uh, we found ourselves in a, in a quite a pickle. And now it's, it's overwhelming to figure out how we get back there. And I really believe that while policy and these other things are really important, that those little actions, those commitments that we make on a local level are going to be the things that can get us back to a better place. Because politicians come and go. Unfortunately, policies, no matter how good they are, you look at the Endangered Species Act, how that's been impacted or how politicians are trying to impact it, you know. It's more, I think we need more like what Aldo Leable talked about when he, you know, wrote about having a land ethic. Yeah. We need to have this ethic for the land, this commitment to the land and this relationship to the land. And, and, and in many ways, uh, take on some of the principles that indigenous communities had for a long time, where they realized you take what you need, but you don't take more than you need, where you respect all of the beings on the land and those kinds of things. And I think the world would be a much better place if we if we just had a little bit more of that.
0: Totally. And, you know, it's something we can be indulgent with. You know, if you like beauty and you like interesting things going on outside of just, you know, some long grasses, well, then go wild with all of the plants you could possibly shove into whatever space you have. If that's a window box, go for it. If it's an acre of yard, go for it. And Spend some time watching, just sit back and watch what happens when you do that because it may not be that particular plant or that particular insect, but something's going to come along that's going to blow your socks off in a that's big so way. <laughs> but the other side of this, too, is you know, you mentioned it's in tandem with do something local in your space, whatever that may be, but then giving to or helping organizations do something bigger as well, and especially regionally. I mean, I talk to a lot of land managers a lot of restorationists, and one of the biggest things they need is help. You know, you may not have space to devote to a garden, but you can go out and cut invasive species, help reseed a spot, take back some of what's been lost. And and that's a really, really, really profound statement when you're talking about North America's grasslands, because boy, there's an endangered habitat type on this continent. It's grassland.
1: No, you're so right about that. And you know, as a a guy who grew up in the Eastern United States, I didn't really have a concept of the Great Plains or the Northern Great Plains till I moved out to Montana and began my job <laughs> here about seven years ago with World Wildlife Fund. And I found at first the grasslands to be overwhelming. I was used to the forest <laughs> and I looked out in the grasslands and I thought, is there anything here? You know, like <laughs> what's here? I knew I could hear a bird or two, but I didn't see anything. But the more I spend time in a grassland, and the more i spend just quietly listening and looking it is the the abundance of life within the mm-hmm. grass is is so spectacular you know, I think there's a misconception that North America's grasslands are just like your front lawn or a, a, a golf course, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, but there's so many differences to start with the roots of these native plants, um, not just grasses, but, you know, some of the wildflowers we have like coneflower or lead plant or all these other cool plants that we have out here. Those species, the roots go 10, 15 feet down in the soil where they store, wa- pull water into the soil. They sequester so much carbon Oh my god yeah you know like they're so vital for protecting our world from increased climbing climate change especially as the world's forests are unfortunately like you know burning a lot of their carbon (laughs) stored beneath the ground um they're just so vital and unfortunately um the northern great plains is losing a lot of land to plow up for row crop agriculture agriculture in fact Since 2009, we've lost around 33 million acres of grasslands to plow for row crop. Um, And you know what's so sad about it for me is that a lot of that land that's being plowed up is not really ideal for cropping. Most of the the productive lands have already been plowed. Um, And so what we're doing here at WWF is we're working very closely with with private landowners. Many of them are are ranchers who believe in sustainable ranching. And that's another misconception I, you know, the idea that all beef is bad for the landscape. Um, I, you know, I really, I'm more of a vegetarian, but I see the value of, of sustainable grazing for the grasslands because grasslands need to be grazed in order to main, remain intact. If they're not grazed, you have, you know, juniper and other types of woody vegetation coming in and totally changing right. the, the ecosystem. Um, And so we are working with these landowners to help support their efforts to to manage grasses in a way that that better mimics some of the native herbivores. But what I also find is that within these large, privately owned plots of land, and some of them are like 20,000 acres. I mean, these are massive compared to what I was used to back in the East. (laughs) You know, you have the full suite of wildlife. You have, you know, pronghorn. You have amazing native insects you have a plant diversity you have all of these things living alongside Mm. a sustainable source of food so you know it it does encourage me um, when i see the work that we're doing here at wwf and it also makes me want to shout from the rooftops to the rest of the world the people that don't live here how important these grasslands are and that you know quite frankly at times we've lost these grasslands faster than the brazilian amazon has been deforested yeah. And it hardly makes a blip, you know, in the news.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's why I was really happy to get uh, Al on a few episodes ago to talk about the importance of grasslands, but like old growth grasslands, this concept that's really just starting. I'm, you know, people have been talking about it ever so slightly. Uh, but yeah, I, the, 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 the kind of crossing the aisle and working with ranching, working within this system that's in place for better, for worse, wherever you feel it's there, it's an economic, need for these people, uh, working with them, because I, I find more and more that it's not about antagonism. It's not about them hating nature and wanting to do everything in their power to destroy it. It's just, you know, a lot of people are just struggling to get by, don't have the time or capacity to think about this stuff. But if you start showing those incentives and ways that we can work together, I mean, we're going to stand to gain so much more than if we're just throwing rocks at each other from across the aisle. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, it's that whole idea that, you know, oftentimes you have a lot more in common with somebody than you realize. And what I would say from the experiences that I've had with working with ranchers out here um, is that we all share a love of the land and, and, and these ranchers, while they might be land rich, you could say, it's not like they're doing this because they love being on the land. They're not doing it because they're getting rich, (laughs) right? you know? And the alternative is, um, quite frankly, that they, you know, someone plows up the land, which is not really good for anybody. Yeah. Um, so, so um, I think working with people and figuring out a way to partner is is the way to go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think too being out there and showing how much is still there and how little tweaks to sort of the performance or the way it's approached can really have those benefits. Because if you think of what one square foot can do, in a suburban urban interface, something like that. Think about what you can do with thousands of acres if you just pay a little bit more attention or work slightly differently or just accept certain things uh, are just going to be part of that. Uh, it's it's incredible to think of the potential there.
1: Yeah, it really is. And, you know, even if I, you know, <laughs> I, would never, I wouldn't consider myself a city boy, but you come into some of these rural places and <laughs> they're like, oh, you know, you're a city boy or whatever. But when I, when I go to these places, of course, I'm looking for insects and things like that. And I had this experience in Nebraska where um, in the Nebraska Sandhills, if anyone's familiar with that who's listening, you'll know that the Sandhills are these, you know, these ancient dunes that have been covered with grass. And then you have these areas that are called blowouts where grass is blown off. And around those blowouts, you have these really super interesting plant communities that grow there. And you also find really interesting insects. And so like <laughs> this rancher was telling me, oh, well, you know, we're like, we're making the land better. We're covering up these blowouts. And so I went up to to own his property and started photographing these amazing tiger beetles and these really cool flowers. And he was like, where'd you find that? And I was like, well, it's up on this blowout. But where'd you find that? And I just kept like hammering it home. And you know, it's like, I know that I'm a little annoying about these things and maybe intentionally, I don't know, or my enthusiasm is a lot, but people take notice and then suddenly you're like, oh, you're that bug guy. But but then they'll text me and say, hey, check this out. Like I got this one video from this one ranching partner. It was so, I I don't mean to sound demeaning when I say it was adorable, but it was truly adorable. (laughs) He was chasing a bumblebee with his cell phone videotaping, you know, recording it. And he sent it to me. He was like, look at this. I found a bumblebee. And I was just like, that's awesome. I just can't imagine this rugged old dude out there following this bumblebee around, you know, (laughs) it it warmed my heart. And it's that kind of thing that keeps me going. I think.
0: Yeah. That's really encouraging. And, uh, you know, Someone showed me this example of sort of a ladder, uh, of sort of like a ladder of understanding where, you know, the people you're trying to reach are the people at the base of that ladder. And then the ideal concept is that top rung. You can't expect anyone to just jump all the way up there. I mean, ecology is messy. It's complex. Even just us trying to talk as two people that are well-versed in this material have a hard time kind of summarizing even half of the ideas that are banging around in our head. And this stuff gets wilder the deeper you go into it and so these moments like you just outlined there are so important because those are teachable moments that's that's kind of reinvigorating a connection getting people to just pay a little bit more attention and kind of letting them connect some of the dots too along the way it's not going to be what you want overnight but you can at least get them a few rungs up that ladder towards an understanding that yeah some mutual benefits can be found
1: yeah for sure and you know when I growing up and especially when I first started working in conservation um, <laughs> being the zealot maybe that I was I wanted everybody to have the same amount of enthusiasm for everything as I did yeah. I thought we need to get back to this place where everybody loves everything and I sort of had this imagined sort of idea about how might maybe it was you know thousands of years ago or whatever but I really realized that there are people you know in every society who are are good at math and some people are farmers and some people are the people who speak up for the insects and so like if i can just get other people to have a live and let live mentality that's okay right like i don't have to have everybody be a cheerleader for for the insects that's my job right you know that's that's the voice that i have and that's the voice that i try to use and so you know if people can just stop and take notice like (laughs) Like I have people that will say, oh, I had a bee in the house and I didn't kill it. I let it outside. And they're like, it's almost like they're fighting their instincts, but they, <laughs> they did the right thing, you know? Right. <laughs> and so so people can change. And I think it gets back to this idea of sort of approaching it with kindness. Now, I say that, but I get mad. It, I get angry. I get depressed. I get sure. sad. I'm not like a robot no. about these things.
0: There's realism why, too.
1: <laughs> but that, yeah, there's realism. But I think that's why working on that local level just to really drive that point home yes. can be super powerful big time um, because you develop relationships with these people and then they listen to you as a friend first and then you go, well, you know, you shouldn't be planting that in your yard or you shouldn't be mowing your grass so much. Or like, I noticed you didn't have any bees in your yard, you know, and there's little things you can do and you, you build up a rapport with somebody and then you can change their mind because they just like you. And so they listen to you.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's building trust. uh, and, And something I think we don't have a lot of, at least in our society. And, you know, I've, said similar things before but there's a lot of people in our neighborhood that take notice of the butterflies coming to our liatris or the bees and going hey why isn't that happening in my yard and it's just these little moments we don't have to talk about politics or you know what's on whatever radio station they're listening to at that time or think tanks we just find those common moments to bond over and then we go our separate ways but you know i get along with my neighbors and that's already a step in the right direction and you know if I can give them a few iatra seedlings at the end of the year and they put them in their yard I f- uh, that's a victory for
1: me yeah and if they don't want them you just throw them over the fence no, I, did, I say, did I say that <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know I had this moment where I was I was living at this place and the neighbors. it was actually the place back in South Carolina I mentioned earlier and right after we moved in, uh the guy over the road trying to be very nice came over and mowed the entire field when Ah, i was away and i was like oh no so i had to have this conversation with him and i was like this is why i want the field to grow blah 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 but i could tell they were like that hippie he's like some weird (laughs) dude and i remember so clearly um it was Thanksgiving day and I was lying in this hot dirt patch <laughs> up near the driveway where they near their house. And they came driving past, you know, for this family dinner. And I was, I was lying out in the grass or in the dirt photographing this leafcutter bee going back and forth through her nest. I was just filthy. I looked like I died and, and, and in the heat. I almost did. But I published some of those pictures um, uh, on one of national geographics platforms. And suddenly they were like, well, he's weird, but he's, these are our bees, you know, nice. like he's doing something cool with them. So, you know, I, I've just learned to to be my weird self and, and not worry so much about where a person's politics lie or anything like that, because I think my enthusiasm can be contagious um, or either people are afraid that I'm insane and they yeah. just go along with it. But either way, Play it along. tends to work out.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're just going to go inside now. Uh-oh.
1: Okay. Close the
0: door. <laughs> I've had those moments too, <laughs> but again, coming back to your photography, what you do is so vital to you know be a cheerleader for these organisms because it's it's that whole I, I burn it with fire, I killed it. It's in my house, you know. And to an extent, I can empathize. If a wasp shows up, I'm not necessarily calm, but it's it's those photographs that make you stop and go. No, this is a living thing it's different than what I thought it was. And up close, it's actually kind of beautiful. But when you start to peel back the layers and think about, okay, why are these bees visiting things differently? There's, there's so many jumping off points for just thinking of, of how complex the world is, whether your origin stories are the same or not. There's a reason those bees are doing different things on flowers. There's a reason they're different species. Right. And that's that whole exploration of just like niche space opens people's minds and and eyes to, Just the the things are different out there, and that's kind of fun.
1: Yeah, it is, and you know i I love photography and video, but I think the thing I really appreciate about photography in particular is that you know one of the 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 problems I think people have with insects is it's an issue of scale. (laughs) Humans are some of the largest (laughs) creatures that exist on Earth, even though there are certainly ones that are bigger. I mean, ninety nine point nine percent of life on Earth is smaller than your little finger. Yeah, and so people have a hard time. Um, even seeing what's going on around them. And, and then, you know, you get close enough and it flies away, or maybe you're afraid it's going to attack you. So there's a natural barrier there that I think photography helps to break down. Um, and, you know, it's funny. You, you think people are aware of things in their backyard, but sometimes they're not. And a really exciting experience that I had um, a couple of years ago in 2019 was I was able to go to Indonesia and rediscover the world's largest bee, uh, Mega Kylie Pluto, <laughs> which, was, which was a dream that my friend Eli Wyman and I had been working on for, for probably four or five years. And Eli had been thinking about it much longer than that. <laughs> but the reason we wanted to to find the bee ultimately was because a specimen showed up on eBay and sold for a lot of money. Ooh. And I was really concerned because it had never been photographed alive. We didn't know if that specimen was one that had been, it had been seen twice in uh, 18, like 1800s. And then in um, 1981 Next. and then no official records of it being seen since then. And so we, we felt like, okay, if it is being collected all of a sudden sold online, um, we need to bring this to the attention of the world because in some cases, if, you know that whole idea of people can't save what they don't know yeah i think can be very true so i thought well if if the indonesian government isn't doing anything to help protect the species if i can blow this story up and help people uh know about it and fall in love with it maybe that'll become the bee will become a point of pride which is ultimately what happened um, (laughs) to make a very long story short is that once we photographed it it was, it was such a huge story. It'll probably be the only time in my life where something I do goes truly viral. But we had over like 2.2 billion media hits. It was the number one story on the BBC. Um, it was second on Google only to the death of um, the monkey's guitarist, Peter Tork. Oh, once, ag- once again, a <laughs> mammal has overtaken-, no. <laughs> <laughs> overtaken a bee or an insect. But it was just, it was truly bizarre. And there were all of these comments, like, you know, they were the kill it with fire kind of idea, but there were also like a lot of genuine questions about the bee. And I started getting these emails, even got one earlier this week from somebody in Honduras who was like, are you sure this bee doesn't live in Central America? You know? And I was like, no, but I was able to have a meaningful conversation with this person.
0: That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. So I think photography creates a dialogue that, Raises people's curiosity because they can hold a thing and they can look at it and they mm. can analyze it. And along with the stories that people like myself can tell, I think we can change perceptions in a way. So I guess, you know, conservation takes a lot of different approaches. And so we have to pick the ones that work for us. Right. And- for me, photography has been a great uh, vehicle for that.
0: Well, visual people such as myself very much appreciate it. And uh, again, kudos on that story because that was the first I knowingly learned of your work. So <laughs> it worked. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but that's, that's so cool. And so with that in mind, I mean, if people want to find out more about the efforts you're putting in with the World Wildlife Fund, all of these wonderful projects that are uh, being undertaken to help and, and just learn more about your work in a broader sense, where do you recommend they go looking?
1: Um, I would recommend that they go to worldwildlife.org NGP for Northern Great Plains to learn more about our work here in the Northern Great Plains, um, as well as my personal website, claybolt.com, or I'm on Instagram at, at claybolt. Um, and uh, would love to hear from everyone and um, hope you l- take the time to learn more about your local insects and about the Northern Great Plains, because we have a really, really special jewel of an ecosystem right here in our national backyard.
0: Yes, we do. And Clay, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about it. But most importantly, for all of the work you put in to just speak for those that don't have a voice in human society uh, and and really pushing for work that's meaningful and impactful and, and really can make a difference. So thank you again for taking the time to tell us all about it.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Well, hang in there. Stay healthy and happy botanizing and taking pictures of insects (laughs) all right wonderful stuff lots of food for thought i thank clay for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us and for really just providing important insights from an organization like the world wildlife fund whereas they're dealing with things across the world the message of doing things locally in our own backyards and our own neighborhoods is so important we can make a huge difference if we just try And it doesn't take that much either. Give time, give money, give space, plant some plants. And just sit back and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Watch what visits them. Once again, check the show notes for this episode. You can find all of the relevant links as well as access to Clay's wonderful photography. It is stellar. You can also check out the Rusty Patched Bumblebee documentary he put together. I'll put a link up there as well. If you like this podcast and you want it to have a future, consider signing up to become a patron over at patreon.com slash of plants. A tiny monthly contribution each month goes a long way in ensuring the show has a future. You can also support the show by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, or stickers. At the very least, consider hitting that subscribe button and telling a friend. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.